Hi, this is Nikki Belmonte, the new executive director of the American Birding Association, and I'm so excited to be this organization's new leader. I look forward to growing our community and inviting people from all walks of life to enjoy and protect wild birds. Today, I'm asking you to support our nesting season appeal and help us inspire our youth to discover the joy of birding and the beauty of nature. You can donate online at aba.org appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Thank you for your support. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. It is the last Thursday of the month, so it's time for this month in birding for May 2022. Very exciting. So we'll keep the stuff at the top relatively short. But I do want to remind everyone that I will be joining the ABA trip to Panama in September of this year. If you would like to be part of that trip, go ahead and sign up. It's going to be very, very fun. And if my going helps to nudge you into the direction of joining us, well, that would be super. I'm, I'm really stoked to visit the Canopy Tower folks and Carlos Betancourt. The, the birding will be spectacular. Come make the birdering spectacular, too. You can get more information at aviated.org slash travel. All right, that's taken care of for now. You will hear me pushing this a lot this summer. Be ready or sign up so you can say, okay, Nate, I did it. That's cool, too. To the show, we've got a nice group of returning friends for this month in birding. Molly Brown. Gabriel Foley, and Perpita Saha. We talk spring birding, broken wing displays, and bird names in lots of languages, among other things, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of May 2022. For the first time since 2019, visiting birders are once again on St. Paul Island in Alaska. The Bering Sea outpost has historically been an exceptional place for East Asian vagrant birds, typically in late May and June, so things are starting to heat up there. And recent finds of wood sandpiper, Kamchatka, common gulls, and lesser sand plover suggest we could be in for a nice spring. Also in Alaska, a field fair was found in Utkiakvik. This highly migratory thrush has been expanding eastward in Russia in recent years and will perhaps become more regularly encountered in the western part of the continent, something to look forward to. And staying out west, down to California, where a Ross's goal, which is always worth mentioning in the lower 48, was seen in Del Norte County, only the fourth for the state. It unfortunately did not stick around long. No word on whether it was eaten by a bald eagle. Too soon? Those are the rarities for this week, but for the full accounting, you can check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. It is the end of the month, and with it comes the This Month in Birding panel. And because May is arguably the best month of the year for birding in the U.S. and Canada and across much of the Northern Hemisphere, we have a panel this month that meets the expectations of that month. Uh, three returning friends here to talk birds and bird news. So we'll go in reverse alphabetical order as how, as we have uh, in 2022. Uh, she's a New Jersey birder, a galvatross, and a writer at Popular Science. Welcome back, Barbita Saha. Woo, go spring migration. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. Uh, next up, he is the Atlas Coordinator for Maryland and D.C., which must be very busy these days. And uh, one of our bird names for birds friends as well, Gabriel Foley. Hi, Gabriel. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 
And she's a big wheel at the Birding Co-op and Nighthawk Agency. And if you're a podcast fan, you know her as one of the co-hosts of the Lifeless podcast, which you should be listening to if in addition to this one, obviously. Um, <laughs> hi, Molly Brown. <laughs> hey, everybody. Happy to be back. Absolutely. And, and I hope that you have all had a good birding spring as we now sort of edge towards the, the end of it. Um, Molly, I saw you at Biggest Week. We talked briefly on the boardwalk. Uh, Gabriel, I know you were on the other side of Lake Erie relatively recently. What have been some birding highlights for you all this month? Well, Biggest Week was pretty great. Yeah. Biggest Week is always pretty great. Biggest Week was fun. (laughs) Yeah. What were some Uh, of the surprises there? Surprises? Surprises for me. I've never seen so many prothonotary warblers. It was ridiculous. Yeah. I'm glad you're saying that too. Did you see the one that was nesting in the boardwalk? Like there was a little crack on one of the posts. (laughs) And it was was building a nest. You could walk by and like look inside. And there was like a prothonotary warbler building a nest. And they'd put a little rope around it. So you had to go around it. But um, yeah, if that's not an indicator of how many freaking prothonotary warblers there were there. Oh, yeah. I love that. So were these all, these, these were all nesting? Or I guess. to be nesting. Yeah, there were at wow. least a handful of nests that you could just actively watch from the boardwalk. Yeah. So they they do nest there. Um, yeah. In the past, when I've gone there, there are nest boxes, um, and I've kind of heard that in recent years they haven't been used as heavily, or maybe they were nesting well, later. Or the something. boardwalk itself is better than any nest box, evidently. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was so so happy with that. That was my favorite. I saw a Kirtlands too. So yeah, you know, that's a nice <laughs> side note. Uh, it sounded like it was a pretty good year for Kirtland's Warblers. And I think they had at least two. Was... At the marsh or was that off-site? Uh, it was so at the marsh. It was yeah, boardwalk. Yeah, on not marsh. on the boardwalk. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was great. I think I caught it at a good time for weather and bird activity and whatnot, too. I was there for a few days at the end. Um, and what I, I love is that I, I live here in West Virginia, so I get mm-hmm. the southern breeders that right. are around here. So if you put that together, it makes a nice spring migration for me. That's right. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, oh, my goodness. Like the morning warbler situation was sort of ridiculous as well. I mean, that is kind of a tough bird. And they were all over the place. Um, Same yeah, at Yeah, we onto that. I was really? going to ask uh, Gabriel, uh, Peely versus McGee Marsh. <laughs> the ultimate throwdown. How how where you where are you going? I mean, you know that since I'm Canadian, I gotta like stand <laughs> up for for Canada. Uh, you know, I'll I'll probably pick Peely over Ohio. But one of the one of the things that Peely does have that McGee Marsh doesn't is that that tip. So Peely is this triangle that sticks out into Lake Erie. And so, you know, birds coming north. That is the first bit of land that they see other than other than the Peely Island. Um, but, you know, you can watch the birds. You can stay on that tip and you can watch the birds come flying across across the lake. You know, they're just a foot or two off the water. They're coming in and you just, you know, you, you get them coming up and landing like right at your feet. It is one of the coolest experiences. I love it. Fair enough. Fair enough. How does the migration period line up with uh, what happens at like Black Swamp in Ohio? Is it like just a few days after? Is it at the exact same time? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my yeah. sense is that when one is good, the other is usually really good too. Um, because, you know, they're all stacked up on on the south side of the lake. And then when the weather turns, they all just kind of 
blow off towards the north end of the lake, and then Peely gets it too. I know that Mickey Marsh was really hopping during the week of the uh, biggest week. Like that whole midweek area was just like crammed with birds. And I, I was hearing stories from Peely as well that they were having an amazing, amazing week too. So they line up pretty well. Um, maybe you might know uh, better, Gabriel. Yeah, I do wonder if, and I don't know this, but I do wonder if they, um, like, they can stay longer at McGee because they're yeah. just kind of staging, they're ready to go. Whereas once they get over the lake, you know, well done, they're over the lake, and so I wonder if maybe they uh, they take off a little bit sooner than than they might otherwise. But maybe I'd, yeah, that's just. I don't know that speculation. Yeah. How about yeah, you, uh, Perbita? New Jersey is no slouch when it comes to uh, <laughs> comes to birding opportunities. How's your spring been? I personally have had a slow spring. I've kind of lapsed back into 2020 very local birding, um, which hasn't been a terrible thing. I rediscovered a local cemetery, and um, cemetery birding is all the rage. Uh, thank right you, now. Daniel Bellamy, uh, cemetery birder. I think her book is coming out this month as well. Gabriel's actually mentioned in it. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm still waiting for, maybe I missed it, but I'm still waiting for like the big surge of warblers and songbirds in that patch. Uh, I just saw my first, I think, Baltimore Orioles there last week. Um, but I mean, New Jersey's been quite busy. There were a couple Arctic turns on the coast here. Uh, oh yeah, I heard about in that in the salt marshes of yeah. the Netherlands, and I just didn't get out quick enough. Uh, I'm not sure I could identify an Arctic turn if I saw one. I would just be like, <laughs> "That's a tough one." That turn is different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there were a couple individuals down in Cape May too. So I think I don't I don't know what the phenomenon is behind that but yeah i'd heard some birders talking about the great arctic turn push of spring 2022 <laughs> like i don't know like there was some weather thing like some uh, strong easterly winds that just pushed them up to the close to the coast so that birders were were seeing them you know that is that is a bird that this time of year is um usually way offshore oh um, i see yeah oh, we usually cool. get them out like uh, on pelagic trips and stuff because um, okay. they're they're moving back up to the to the tundra from antarctica famously um, but something something happened and they were just turned up in the mid-Atlantic states. Yeah, I know uh, folks who were down in Cape May for the World Series of Birding mm -hmm. um, this uh, just a few weekends ago. They were also seeing a lot of Wilson's storm petrels right yeah. near the beach. So that was I think in North Carolina too. Yeah, there was some big um, storm system there that brought in a lot of those great seabirds. The local, you know, group me, rare bird uh, thing in North Carolina has been sort of uh, hit with a lot of people saying uh, Wilson storm petras up the Cape Fear River. So the Cape Fear River goes down around Wilmington and where it you know gets really wide and flows into the Atlantic Ocean, obviously. It's a really, very big, wide river. Um, but people were seeing, you know, Wilson storm petrels from bridges and from, you know, Wilmington, Wilmington Harbor, um, which is not, not something that happens <laughs> very often. I'll just wow. say that. <laughs> Thank you for... Uh, putting this very cool study on my radar, Nate, because um, I had missed it myself. Uh, but it came out at the end of April and looks more specifically at how we collect bird data and how the wide geographic distribution of birds actually makes it more difficult for us as humans with many different cultures and many different languages to uh, collect data in a standard way. And what 
ends up happening then is that a lot of the information we have on birds, um, whether it be for ornithology or for birding, uh, ends up being biased toward, you know, English speakers or Mm -hmm. um, English organizations. So this study published in the journal PLS-1, it was um, conducted by researchers from the University of Auckland and University of Amsterdam. And what they did was they mapped the geographic distributions of like thousands of species of birds and looked at roughly how many languages were spoken in the areas covered by each species. And they also broke it down by like endemic birds, um, migratory birds, and um, I guess just those two. (laughs) And yeah, I think there are some really interesting numbers. But on average, they said that there were seven different languages spoken in all the ground that a bird species can cover. Um, And at minimum, at least two languages spoken wherever each bird was. Um, So that even includes birds with a very tight slice of range, you know, whether it be on like an island or it's just a very endangered bird in like the Amazon rainforest. It just really speaks to, we think about national languages. So they went really, really granular and looked at local yeah. dialects, indigenous languages, languages that may not be as popularly spoken today, but still exist in um, local cultures. And what was interesting was they um, they actually pulled some of their sources from CIA data, which uh, if there were ever a way for the CIA to help out birders and ornithologists. <laughs> May this be the one. I would love to learn more about the solutions that these researchers propose because yeah. ultimately their point is that the big databases we use, including eBird, again, are just, they need to account more for some of the local knowledge that might be buried in the languages that we don't know so well. And I don't know if uh, any of you have had that experience, whether, you know, just uh, like, in the melting pot of the U.S. or even traveling abroad. I know when I went bird banding in Mexico, there were a lot of bird names where the common names, we were saying something, and then the local Mexican banders yeah. were using a completely different other word. And just learning that, even though I don't really know Spanish, just like opened my eyes up so much more. A lot of the common names after that didn't really make sense to me because I was like, well, their name was so much more descriptive. And I know we've had that yeah. discussion multiple times here. It's an ongoing discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm glad you enjoyed this because I thought it was kind of a neat, uh, neat paper. I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for anything having to do with like birds and like the languages, the language we use to talk about birds. Uh, it's kind of hits my sweet spot of interest. As you say, there's some really wild uh, numbers thrown around here. Like some of the species that are you know, distributed really widely in Asia, it's like 85 different languages are spoken during this bird in this bird's range. Like, how do you communicate with people about conservation needs when it's so widely disparate? And I don't know whether coming up with some sort of, you know, common database of names that we all agree, I guess that's what a Latin name is, what a scientific name is, uh, is is the way to way forward. But it's definitely um, illustrates a problem, but also just illustrates the diversity of how we talk about birds in addition to the diversity of birds, which I think is just sort of really neat. Yeah. Well, I even think in India, I mean, there are two modes of communicating, right? Like if you do have a national language like Hindi, Mm -hmm. um, most people who live in India can communicate in that general way. 
but then almost each state has its own dialect. So yeah, right. my family speaks Bengali and some of the names they have for like their um, versions of robins and kites and such are uh, very different than, you know, what someone in South India would call them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's it's a fun game to try and figure out what bird everyone is trying to talk about and just <laughs> through like those general descriptions. Um, but I've I, I realize I've come across that communication issue like just in my personal life. Yeah, it's an issue with coming up with like a common Spanish language name of birds. Um, because you know, Frank Izaguri wrote something in one of the a recent publication, he's been a guest on the podcast before, about the you know, the difficulty of that because you know, the different Mexican states have different names for birds. And then that doesn't always include the Cuban names for the same birds and the Dominican names for the same birds. And all the different Spanish speakers have their own little little twist on it. It's really hard to say, all right, we're going to have a Spanish language bird list. Like, wh- which one do you go with? You can kind of pick and choose which one is closer, I guess, but it's really difficult. Yeah, a visit to Central America that I took by myself several years ago really inspired me to start truly learning scientific names of birds for that reason. Uh, I was like, (laughs) I was out birding by myself. And at the time, my Spanish was not great. It's still not great. Um, But I just ran into another birder and we couldn't communicate super well on anything except he knew all the scientific names of of the birds that we were seeing. So then I was just trying to keep up with those. Um, I thought this article was just interesting metaphor for all the differences that birds experience and habitat management, conservation efforts. Um, all of that across the globe. Yeah, and eBird is really kind of uh, trying to address a lot of those issues too with, they have, I, I can't remember how many languages they have translations for. And I don't know that it addresses a lot of the, like the dialect or the local variation very well, but, you know, it's it's at least 30. I kind of want to say it's 60 different languages, but it's like in <laughs> yeah. the tens of languages that they have. Um, that they have bird names for and and really the only limiting factor in terms of what they you know what languages they have available is <laughs> right. the translators so if you can translate you know a, or provide a set of of names then uh, i think they're pretty willing to you know provide that on on ebird and it, it's pretty interesting to go and you know you can go to the birds yeah. of the world and oh, click on yeah, you know, some it. species <laughs> click the names and go through and see all the different ones and sometimes they're all really similar yeah. and sometimes they're not even close it's pretty cool especially so i've been going through the honor eponyms the honorific names uh for all the birds of the world and just kind of as sort of a fun game trying to come up with alternate names for those and i've been using i've been leaning a lot on birds of the world's list of alternate names like in other languages and it's neat to see how other languages sort of approach bird names some of them are just a direct translation of the english name and some of them are much more you know are completely different are inclined to take into account habitats or very specific ecosystems or different places or historic names for places or all sorts of different things um this there's a world of different ways you can name birds um and it's all sort of fascinating (laughs) i actually didn't know that about ebird which is a big yeah it's cool spot yeah you're gonna spend some time there right so now yeah. i am pumped to go check that out is it relative is it a new <laughs> feature sure. or it's been around for a long time i want to say like the like english spanish french has been right. around and like some of the bigger languages have been around for a long time but they've really expanded um the, the names that Very they cool. have uh, available some of them have like 18 or 19 different names 
I got to uh, to look into something kind of linked to uh, to what I do, you know, managing the Atlas. Um, I got to look at distraction displays. And so there's this new research paper that's just come out uh, this month, I think, um, by researchers from Max Planck Institute and the California Polytechnic State uh, University. Basically, they just wanted to know, like, okay, so we've got these distraction displays. Um, how widespread are they among birds? So a distraction display is basically when a bird is trying to distract a perceived predator away from from nest or or chicks. And there's a bunch of different kinds of distraction displays. This paper specifically focused on uh, injury feigning behavior, the the broken wing display. You know, I think pretty much anybody who listens to this podcast has probably seen a killdeer, you know, doing that, doing that broken wing display where you get too close to the nest, you get too close to the chicks, and uh, the parent goes off, starts making a lot of noise and fanning its tail, uh, dragging its wing along. And really, you know, it looks like, you know, I mean, you just want to go and and follow that bird. And uh, so they tried to they tried to quantify, okay, so how many, how many different families of birds actually have this behavior? How widespread is it? And what sort of factors are similar between all of those different groups? And they found that it's actually like really widespread uh, among birds. Um, They had 285 species in 52 different families. So not all plovers, <laughs> but not all plovers. It was, yeah, it was all over the place. And what what's what's interesting too with this is that they were only looking at this one subset of distraction displays. So it makes me wonder, like, okay, if injury feigning is that widespread, which I personally kind of think of yeah. as being like the most elaborate of all the distraction displays, how many different species of birds actually do some form of distraction display? And they found that the biggest predictor of, you know, does a bird do a distraction display? Well, you should say a a broken wing display, or does it not, uh, was latitude. So birds that were farther north um, were more likely to do a a broken wing display than birds, you know, essentially in the tropics. And uh, the thinking there is probably that, you know, uh, these broken wing displays, they really only work on predators that can see it right so visually oriented daytime predators and they have to be terrestrial because if you do it with a bird you know another falcon or something not going to work out so well for you so you need like a big open like field tundra like habitat yeah yeah um although they also found that birds were more likely to do it um if the cover was dense which i have to say um, I did not understand why that would be the case because it's like <laughs> completely yeah, I, opposite yeah. to what I think. Yeah, if I'm thinking of killdeer nests, uh, co- dense cover is not something that immediately comes to mind. Uh, they like uh, what gravel parking lots and <laughs> and like the pebbles on uh, the roof of like schools and, and buildings like that. Yeah, that's that's what they like. That's not dense at all. Yeah, yeah, and and then the opposite effect for the nest itself. So if the nest didn't have a lot of cover, like a killdeer nest, you know, then it was more likely to have the um, 
to have the, the broken wing display. They tested 16 different different variables and half of them had a positive or negative effect. Hmm. So I, I started reading into, you know, got going down the rabbit hole with this. And uh, there's this other paper that kind of talked about distraction displays more broadly. And the best part of it is uh, it was saying, you know, <clears throat> often distraction displays are just attracting a potential predator to the the parent and the parent driving it away, but mm -hmm. not always the case. And apparently there's this, <clears throat> there's an example of common ringed plovers having their nest discovered by an intruder, an intruder. I assume that intruder is the researcher. And the, the plover <laughs> goes over to a nearby least turn nest and starts bobbing and is like, hey, hey, there's a nest right here. Come over here and take oh, this my. nest. <laughs> that to me, that just, I was done. That was the best. The absolute That's worst rude. neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> was that... A single anecdote or that was seen across that was that particular example that i read was one anecdote yeah how many of you have seen the broken ring display i like it's one of my i, I distinctly remember it as one of my first memories of birds was a killdeer that made a nest in a parking lot when i was like a toddler or a little bit older than that and i distinctly remember like being very curious about the killdeer nest and getting too close and the killdeer like always doing the broken wing thing, like just making a fuss, dragging its wing along, follow the bird, right? And you go away and then it flies off every time, every time. I don't know what that says about me that I fell for it every single time, but- um, You're not the only one. I was, I did the Yeah, right? It Evidently it works, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My grandparents had a gravel driveway and killdeer would always yeah, nest perfect. and we'd like have our little area that we didn't go in. Um, and I still, I saw one today on the, the sidewalk where I walk the dogs in the morning. The killdeer have not nested that close to the sidewalk, but they still insist on running over to the sidewalk. And I, I still don't get tired of watching its elaborate little display. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen it in a, in a non-killdeer species? That's what I was just trying to yeah. rack my brain for. I feel like killdeer are very reliable. <laughs> yeah. But... They're certainly the ones that we interact with the most. I mean, it's, it always seemed like a plover thing to me. Like mm -hmm. I, I've, you know, we have beach nesting plovers here in North Carolina. Um, not that I've ever gotten close enough to uh, interact with them because those are piping plovers and they keep those beaches pretty clear. But you know, I've seen videos of them doing the broken wing display for things like foxes or raccoons or, or things like that. Um, the the shock of this study was that it was in thirteen different orders. You know, fifty two bird families. The fact that it's so prolific and widespread that that just bought, blew my mind. Yeah, I'm curious what the biggest. Do you all remember what the biggest like birds that exhibit this behavior are? Cranes, I think. Cranes. Really? Wow. I really have to okay. crouch to get that broken wing to really sell it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think wow, it that's really cool. I'll hmm. be searching YouTube for that. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the th the, you know, the killdeer is just so, I mean, it's sort of obvious that it's doing the broken wing display because I, I guess I read and just assumed, you know, they've got that red rump. And the whole thing is to kind of sell. That's part part of the sell, you know. Oh, it's not only broken wing, but it's sort of a little bit bloody too. Um, now I'm not so sure if it's if it's um, if it's being seen in species that are that obviously do not have a ton of red in their plumage. I, I've seen it. In is it as effective then? Um, they'll do yeah. It. Okay, yeah. yeah I've heard they're doing that. They're really intense. Yeah. They like yeah. open their bills too, and it's like half aggressive and half like oh, not doing so well. <laughs> I'm interested to hear that it's in nighthawks because i mean 
in part it makes sense because they nest in similar environments yeah. as or similar substrates as killdeer um but at the same time like their whole mo was to be so camouflaged yeah. but then they have this very like opposite almost flashy distracting um survival technique as well so that's yeah yeah so it, cool. yeah i guess one of these other papers that i was reading was was kind of talking about exactly that where like distraction displays are kind of in the middle of the riskiness side of things so if you are mm -hmm. like cryptic mm -hmm. if you're hiding um and just hoping that the predator doesn't notice you're hedging all your bets on the fact that that yeah. you don't get seen so kind of risky if the predator is getting close right and if you're being aggressive you know you have to commit you have to go right in right up to that predator and you have to like attack risky Whereas distraction display, you're kind of like, you're kind of going halfway. You're, you have some ability to get away. You're not committing yourself all the way in. I, I'd never thought about it like that. I, and that, I just thought that was super interesting. Yeah, I've always thought of this as like a nest protection technique, but maybe it's more splitting the difference that you get one or the other, but you don't get the entire family. Yeah you know the you're living on the on a razor's edge essentially you know life and death is is right there in front of you you can't be kind of precious about you know how many chicks you save you sort of have to do the best you can under those circumstances which you know i, I don't want to anthropomorphize um maybe it's the opposite of anthropomorphizing it because they're, they're completely uh it's sort of a foreign concept to human beings but I mean, they certainly don't think about it like that, or maybe they do. I have no idea how birds' brains work, but it's just sort of an interesting concept. There's there's no preciousness to it. Like, it is all about getting those chicks fledged and then uh, doing it again if you can. I read a study that showed that songbirds are more colorful the closer they live to the equator. And to be totally honest, I looked at that title and I kind of thought, well... Duh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then I really started digging into this. Um, so this was something that I guess was first noted by Darwin, um, just anecdotally, and this was finally proved. And when I really looked at the amount of technology that went into proving this, then I was more impressed. <laughs> so uh, AI was developed and what becomes interesting with color, other than like these other types of measurements and data that we get on birds, is that it's, it's not an easy thing to measure. Um, Bird C and ultraviolet. It's not just the the visible light spectrum that we're looking at, um, and just what is the perception of color. So I should definitely or define what uh, what they used. So by colorfulness, this was the range of colors that are perceptually different from one another. So the the number of colors on the bird. So I believe by this, I don't know about the ultraviolet spectrum on this, but um, so say like an indigo bunting. I think of as being colorful, but it's sort of all a, a uniform color. So in this scale, oh, it wouldn't okay. measure um, as as colorful. This is as uh, the number of colors too. So AI was developed. They used twenty four thousand individual birds, and they took six photographs of each of these, representing forty five hundred and some odd species, and were able to prove that the closer you are to the equator, um, the closer the more colorful birds are. So they also noted that birds that ate fruit or nectar were more colorful on average than birds that weren't. Um, what this is setting up is figuring out 
why that's the case. And it looks like one of the leading theories uh, is that when you're in denser forests, that you need to be more colorful to stand out for mates and for visibility of your species and that kind of thing, too. It suggested that uh, diet can play a role based on that, um, that what they noted from the fruit and nectar as well. Um, I also wonder if just your, your diet and the habitat that you're in, if you're in a place that has a lot of colorful fruits and and, and flowers and whatnot, if that leads to that uh, difference in the amount of colors as well. Um, but I think it's pretty cool that it took this really advanced technology to take a hundred year old uh, assumption and actually be able to to prove it and start building on it. Yeah. And as I, I started thinking about it, yeah, the idea is like, oh, well, obviously tropical birds are more colorful than, than temperate birds. And, but I wonder where our like our warbler, we were talking about warblers earlier, where do they fit into that? Like, how do they determine whether they are tropical or temperate, I wonder? Because, you know, they spend most of the year in the tropics and they only come up here relatively briefly to take advantage of the Northern Hemisphere summer. So even our most colorful birds um, maybe don't count as as, tro- as colorful for this study. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm thinking about the rate of evolution of like changing your plumage mm-hmm. versus yeah. migration because we know birds can actually evolve to migrate fairly quickly or relatively quickly. Right. So yeah. is colorfulness catching up very slowly compared mm-hmm. to how recently birds have started migrating more and more. That's really yeah. interesting. I guess the idea is, uh, you know, in terms of evolution, I don't remember where I read this. This was in a, maybe a Scott Widensaw book a long time ago about how, whether our migratory birds are, temperate species birds that evolved to take advantage of to you know leave the uh, North America because of the winter or are they tropical species birds that evolved to take advantage of the seasonal abundance of you know insect life in North America like where did and I don't know that there's any sort of really re- real resolution on that topic I mean it's probably a little of column A and a little of column B like most things in science are the birds that we think of as our regular breeding birds are probably tropical birds that evolved to take advantage of our lovely, lovely long days. And then if you, um, if we're talking about latitudinal patterns, I mean, the other big one, right, is that uh, animals with larger bodies tend to Bergman's rule, um, yeah. In, yeah, in the more extreme latitudes. I wonder if you organized birds in that way, Hmm. if that would give us some insight on you know, the origins of, of them pre-migration as well. Um, uh, like point. thinking about so many waterfowl. Yeah, shorebirds. You know, uh, yeah, and shorebird, they stick around here in the winter, but then are, well, sh- some shorebirds are going down to South America and such, but, and then summering way up in the Arctic. It doesn't really make sense to pair that study with a color <laughs> study, but I think those are Questions two patterns that would be fun to look at when when is the alternate plumage molt for our warblers when do they get their breeding plumage um trying to think i, I want to say it's in like late february and march yeah. because i've done some traveling in um central america in february and march and they were mostly there if i remember right i remember seeing some wintering warblers there things like you know townsend's warbler and, and magnolia warbler and things like that and they were looking pretty good by that point. Because, so. I mean, then 
then you've kind of got the like non-colorful stage, like mostly. That's right. That's down, a good point. I see where you're like, going with this. In the tropics and the you know the the nice colorful breeding plumage is is up here maybe they're just maybe they noticed this this difference and they were like <laughs> we really need to spice north america up it's a little bit drab <laughs> i i thought one of the neat things about the study is that they found similar sort of patterns in insects and herps and all sorts hmm. of organisms like the more colorful organisms are in the tropics and the less colorful organisms are in the higher latitudes um, you know, obviously means that this whole this whole thing evolved, you know, independent of anything that birds can do. It's just sort of a pattern yeah, that you see right. in all organisms that are in these areas, even non-migratory ones. That's kind of cool because I, you know, immediately you think of things like uh, poison dart frogs, right? In the, you know, how colorful they are in the tropics and in neotropics. Obviously, I don't know much about the old world tropics. I don't know if they have any sort of cool stuff like that, but. Um, you know, and there's some amazing butterflies and moths that are super colorful as well down there. And obviously just, it's just so much, so much life down there. So maybe it's a question of total numbers too, but oh, it was a neat study mm -hmm. to, to think about, um, how lacking we are, I guess. <laughs> so the question of the month, uh, obviously we've all seen, hopefully a lot of warblers in the last month, a lot of, a lot of good ones. Um, what is the most overrated warbler? in North America? Maybe one that you've seen this year, maybe one that you haven't. I don't like this question. I'm going to preface with that. I really do <laughs> like all well. the birds. I'm with you on that. We got to <laughs> oh, go underrated. Always underrated. Along. Ooh, yeah. underrated. All right, fine. We'll switch it. Give me one of each or choose which one you want. The most underrated board. All right. Ugh, okay. Overrated. What I personally pass up is what I feel like is the most common warbler around here, which is the yellow warbler. And I, they right, get old for me pretty quickly. Um, they're really cool. They are they're loud, so loud. Yes, they are loud. They're they're yeah. very in your face. Like they're they're all over the place, and they're in all these different types of uh, vegetation and stuff too, which is really cool in itself. But I don't stop and look at them very much. Um, well, you know, you're at the biggest week in American birding. If you stopped and looked at every single yellow warbler that you saw, you would never get anywhere because it is the yellow warbler capital of the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so many yellow warblers. There. I did kind of stop when I was looking at like prothonotaries and I thought, I mean, color wise, yeah. they're not drastically different, but somehow they're much cooler than a yellow warbler. <laughs> this song is better too. Um, Yes. I was just going to say about yellow warblers here in Maryland. One of the things that I've been noticing is that yellow warblers seem to be one of the species that we're like not getting reported and you know i don't want to say like oh they're declining because the project's not done and all that but like no they were one of the mo more widespread species nesting um and order of magnitude difference in what we're seeing now so mm. overrated but underreported yeah. yeah if all the yellow warblers disappeared from here and they were rare I don't know. Maybe I would like them a little more. I, I think I'm still. <laughs> they don't do it for me as much. <laughs> what I think is maybe underrated is a bay breasted warbler. Yeah. And that was another one yeah. I got to see a lot. I only ever see like yeah. one or two. And in the spring. when they're passing yeah. through here, they're usually pretty high up and I don't get great looks. And I do like the bay color. What I was really noticing last week when uh, I got to see a lot at eye level and lower is just the intricacy of the colors on their backs and the patterns and they're not as mm -hmm. bright but i think they would register as a very colorful bird on that strategy that i looked they've at. got cool like green green stripes beautiful yeah back. female and male it's as neat. well 
Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And they kind of have a different shape That's a from good a lot of other warblers, too. They're like kind of big mm-hmm. and long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Biggest Week is the one place that I came to appreciate uh, bay-breasted warblers for sure, because there are so many of them. And um, where I live in the southeast, we only ever see them in the fall hmm. uh, for the most part. And, you know, they're they're OK in the fall. But those uh, those kind of chocolate toffee spring birds are oof, that's a really nice. Hey, when, when you guys were at Biggest Week, did you notice bay-breasted warblers doing a lot of fly catching? I'd never. I noticed everything doing a lot of fly catching. this before. <laughs> to me, they're always a gleaner, but they were flying off hmm. and grabbing insects. I don't know. I just did I not notice it before or was this an actual difference? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, maybe <laughs> is there a big hatch yeah. or something? Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of bugs there on, on the shore of Lake Erie. So I imagine that everyone was working pretty hard. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fly catching birds in those woods <laughs> that the boardwalk goes through. Mm-hmm. Perbita, I feel like you should, um, if you have any underrated female warblers because of the Galbatross project and the female bird project. Yeah, we talk about female warblers a lot because uh, I think I actually have a t-shirt from a a very well-loved t-shirt from the biggest week from a few uh years ago and it's all these like fun like warbler Mm -hmm. heads and of course they're all yeah except maybe the oven bird you can't can't really tell (laughs) um or i can't really tell the female warblers um i mean they're just so hard uh to tell apart from each other sometimes uh so people really just kind of don't identify (laughs) that happens a lot but like Molly was saying, some of them have very subtle, cool, you know, nuances like the bay breasted, which I actually had not seen a close. I haven't gotten a close look at a female bay breasted. So now I would love to to do that. Of course, they don't, you know, sing and vocalize as much as the males. So in particular, we talk in some of the ID workshops we've done. We talk about uh, female American red starts just because they are very sexually dimorphic Mm -hmm. um, plumage-wise from the males. But there's an interesting challenge in um, after breeding season when the juvenile males are in that similar plumage. It really comes down to one or two feathers where you're looking to see if those black uh, adult male plumage feathers are growing in on the juveniles. So that's a fun ID challenge. I do really like female red starts. They often nest like just at eye level. Like if you have like some dense shrubbery, um, I feel like I've seen them nesting in Japanese knotweed, hmm. but maybe don't put that on the record. <laughs> I don't think I confirmed that plant ID. They're just very active and fun and always up in your face. So I'm, I, I love those red starts. Yeah. I like female red starts. Um, I think yeah, the black throated blue me that's oh that's a good one yeah that's, that's a good one i don't like the yeah. males stunning but the females kind of take the same sort of thing and they just make it like attractively subtle i don't know i really like it <laughs> they've got mm-hmm. a cool little mask little little eye little face pattern on there that's really neat i think canada warbler is my favorite warbler but i really like female canada's as well canada warbler is a really good one overrated i'll i'll um i'll go there Kirtland's Warbler, overrated. Wow, you did go there. <laughs> I agree. They're kind of chunky. <laughs> I mean, they don't really do a lot. They're slow. They uh, don't have a ton of pattern on them. They're so common now. I mean, there's so many of them now. 
tell the U.S. Fish and Wildlife <laughs> biologists who've been working for decades to bring. They uh, they did a great job. They did a great job. It is weird. Like in the last four or five years, like it does feel like there are more Kirtland's warbler sightings, like in migration, where they used to be like really difficult to find. I mean, in, in yeah. here in North Carolina, a couple of years ago, we had like four different fall Kirtland's warblers that were seen mm. across the state. I mean, that's oh, wow. that's wild. And I think they're I think they're they're riding on that rarity cachet a little bit. And uh, once they don't have that, I think they're just uh, I think they're just a normal warbler. You know, someone asked me uh, when I was at Peely what the biggest warbler was, and I said, "Oh man, I you know I, I think it it have to be Kirtlands, but I didn't I really know it might maybe Connecticut Ovenbird." Mm-hmm. I oh, looked it up. I couldn't believe it. Louisiana water thrush and Ovenbird, both. Oh, okay. 50, yeah, fifty percent bigger. They're we forget that those are warblers. <laughs> than the average warbler and, and Kirtlands, they oh, weigh wow. more. What? They're twenty grams maybe. versus uh, fourteen and a half. Oven bird's pretty dumpy. It's got a lot. It's, it's like a, a different <laughs> like structure thing. Isn't I it? could I see know. the water yeah. thrush because they're long, but the oven bird blew, my mind. blew my mind. Makes that's how they shout yeah. so loud. You got a lot of lung capacity. You. <laughs> <laughs> I guess when it used to when chat used to be considered a warbler, that was a much easier question. That's mm. true. Good point. But every yeah. time I see a chat now, I I look at it. and I'm like, man, how did anyone ever think that that was a warbler? <laughs> nothing like a warbler it doesn't move like a warbler it doesn't act like a warbler it doesn't sound like a warbler it is it is like it's like they just randomly crammed it in there because they didn't have anywhere else anywhere else to put it mm-hmm. for so long before they figured out that that was wrong i think there are a couple in new york city that just sit around in the parks <laughs> chat trash. that is not doing them any favors yeah, they just, the like, reputation any favors <laughs> uh, i think uh you know I, I think I got to go kind of like the opposite of where Molly went with with uh, my choice. Um, I think I, I was thinking about this before and overrated warbler. I went with the gray crowned yellow throat because I was thinking like, right. you know, ABA podcast got to pick something that's like pick all rare rarity based. It's like code yeah. four. Right. And so everybody's. Yeah. Everybody's all excited when they see one. But basically it's identical to a common yellow throat, you know. More that's less interesting less. than a common yellow it, throat, actually. Yeah, fair. <laughs> common yellow throat is a good candidate for underrated warbler. And that's what actually. I was gonna pick. Oh absolutely. Nice. Right Sorry there. Yep. We were talking about distraction <laughs> displays. Common yellow throats do an awesome distraction display. Yeah. Um, you know, they they've got that great song. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. just the the females, super attractive. Yeah, I don't know. Nice subtle. Yeah. That's no, it's cool. a good bird. I love a common yellow throat. Me too. What about um if we're talking overrated, maybe Brewsters oh, and Lawrence. Brewsters, maybe. Like they're just they're just hybrids. <laughs> Come on, Wait. it happens. Once they happen once they more. lump the golden winged and blue winged warbler, then they're going to be considered a form or whatever the scientific term for it is. I like Lawrence's warbler though. I think that's the best looking of all of the golden winged, blue winged complex possibilities. Lawrence's warbler. I've only ever seen one once. They're the rarest too. Um, and it was cool looking. Like it's got that cool face mask of the golden wing, but it's like all yellow, like a blue wing. That's a good looking bird. Yeah, it was mostly trolling. I mean, it's actually very cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very cool biological story that we we have these hybrids. So and these hybrids of yeah. hybrids. Hybrids of hybrids of hybrids. Thank you so much for a great May this month in birding. Uh Gabriel Foley, Molly Brown, and Perbita Saha. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughts. 
Um, we'll have links to all the stuff that we talked about in the show notes and links to all the stuff that all these people are doing. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much. It was, uh, it was great to see you all and I hope you have a, a great summer. Thank you. I learned so much. Thanks so much, Nate. Yeah. This was fun. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits, the biggest of which, I don't know if it's the biggest of which, but it's a big one. We've put all of our old publications going back to like 1969 online for members. You can search them. You can find old bird articles. You can find ways to find all sorts of difficult birds. They may be less relevant 30 years on, but still, some of it are still still really good. That stuff is a member benefit. You can get access to all of that and more information at aviated.org slash join special shout outs this week to shannon cabot of ipswich massachusetts paul fleischman and patty brown of monterey california justin flint of chilliwack british columbia barbara shelkel of brooklyn new york aaron whitaker of san diego california and Derek white of independence kentucky they all joined the aba and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so it means so much to me to continue to see names on this list people who are joining the ABA because of what we're doing here. Thank you so much for that. And welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who deserves credit in her first week on the job for not acting like her arm was broken and limping away from the weekly staff meeting. Technical production is by John Lowry, who when asked to include an additional ad in this episode, put on a Zoom background and covered himself in a green cloth until I went away. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. The less said about what they did when I approached their workspace, the better, but we went through at least three cans of carpet cleaner. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. We learned so much from birds. For instance, I've found the best way to avoid solicitors at my house is to build a separate house nearby. And when they visit it, I run out the back door to my real house where I can watch from a safe distance as they destroy the front porch. Foolproof. Never failed. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.